This week's episode of the Star Wars Report is brought to you by the good folks supporting us over on patreon.com slash Report. Let's do the show, folks. Gum, gum, gum. And who might you be? It's the Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report. Woo! Star Wars Report. The place for Star Wars news, features, interviews, and more. Then we can do something epic. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Please delete as appropriate. The Force. It's calling to you. Just let it in. Hey guys, welcome back to the Star Wars Report podcast. I'm your host, Riley. And um, how do I put this? I'm, I'm pretty freaking excited for this this week's podcast. It's another special long-form interview, but it's, um, it's even more special than usual. It's with a guest that I've been trying to get uh, a hold of for the better part of this year. Uh, it's the author of Secret History of Star Wars, Mr. Michael Kaminsky. Um, as you guys may or may not know, ever since I, I finally... Um, wolfed my way through the entire 600-page book uh, early this year, I've been trying to get a hold of him because it's really, and I say this on the podcast, it's really like the most comprehensive, detailed work uh, exploring the making of Star Wars from the original trilogy through the prequels. And in some ways, the prequels is the most underappreciated part um, because it's really interesting to see this in-depth third-party um research that's not coming from Lucasfilm, which is where all the behind the scenes stuff we've known for years, but but looking beyond and deeper than than what we've gotten. Uh, and so we talk all about the book, uh, George Lucas's evolution with the scripts of the original trilogy all the way up through the uh, the prequels and the sequel trilogy. So I won't, uh, without any further ado, uh, I'll just jump straight into the interview. Mr. Michael Kaminsky. You're listening to the Star Wars Report. It's against my programming to impersonate a deity. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've got him on. I'm so excited to be uh, having as a guest for the first time here on the Star Wars Report podcast, the author of The Secret History of Star Wars. It's Mr. Michael Kaminsky. How's it going, man? Not bad. How are you doing? You know, I um, we were talking just for a second when the when the call started about uh, how excited I am to talk to you about about this book and this project because, and, I, and I'll just tell you right here, it's it's really a work of of research and in depth in terms of the Star Wars creative process and George Lucas's story that's unparalleled that just hadn't been done hitherto mm-hmm. unknown and and it's not uh, frankly it's not well known enough within the Star Wars community. Um, I only this past year had a chance to 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 actually go through the the whole book. I listened to the audiobook and um loved it so much and wanted to reference it. I ordered the um the uh, all all beautiful 600 pages uh mm-hmm. right here. So Michael, welcome to the program. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh so I I'll just jump right off the bat. What's the what's the genesis of this project? I know that it's it was a long time kind of passion project of yours, but what was the genesis of you wanting to like actually chronicle the the full making of, the full genesis of Star Wars? Well, basically, um number 1 at that time George Lucas was sort of trying to rewrite history in some ways. He was telling a very different story of the genesis of Star Wars. And I was like, well, you know, people are going to 
but we take him at face value because you know he's the guy that wrote it. Are you going to question him? But I'm like, but no. Like if you go into the you know the documents and the the scripts themselves and the interviews he had earlier, it's a totally different picture. And so I knew that you know I I and I had spent years years like my entire teenage years and even after I started writing the book just tracking down these obscure books and uh, magazines on eBay and stuff. Spent hundreds of dollars on eBay. Uh, thank God back then that stuff was relatively cheap. But it basically, it was the type of book that I, as a fan, always wanted to exist. Hmm. But it didn't it, But it didn't exist. And I wasn't confident that anyone would ever write it. Because I wasn't confident that anyone else was as nuts about this stuff as I was. And so I was like, well... I guess I have to write it. <laughs> and it was kind of as simple as that, but it, it didn't start out as a book. It was going to be like, I don't know, like a website or, a, you know, some kind of blog post. Hmm. And as I started getting into it, I realized that in order to explain certain things, you had to explain certain other background things in order to put that into context. And before you know it, it was like 60, 70 pages long. And I was like, uh, I think this might be a book because I realized I was like not, not even halfway to the end of the first draft. First draft was about 200 pages. Final draft was, in, in the computer file, it's like 800 and something. So it grew quite a bit over the drafts. I did about six drafts. So, so but yeah, basically at the end of the day, it was the, the book that I, as a fan, wanted to exist. The closest thing was uh, Laurent Bozero's um, The Annotated Screenplays book. Mm. But that's like, there, there's not that much commentary in there. I mean, what there is in there is great, but it's very uh, light. It's it's mainly a transcription of the scripts, yeah. and then with a little commentary on the side about the early drafts and stuff. So that was one thing, but I'm like, no, this needs to be like a full-on specialty book. Yeah, and because that's what I want, and uh, I, you know, no one else is going to write it if I don't. So. Well, how? All right, if you don't mind me asking, like, so this was like high school age when you started compiling all this stuff. Well, I mean, um, like Dale Pollock's Skywalking. Are you familiar with that book? It's the I am first. Yes. I, I read that book when I was 10 years old. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I read the annotated screenplays when I was 15 years old. And I read the early drafts when I was 16 years old. And I started collecting newspaper articles. I had a whole scrapbook, believe it or not, of uh, when the prequels were coming out, there'd always be an interview with George Lucas in the paper or a review or an article. And I'd cut them out and I'd put them into a literal scrapbook. Um, so I started collecting this stuff very early on, and then I started getting uh, interested in some of the early interviews, and I bought lots of books with that. And so I had all this material going in once I started, and I had there was all kinds of online articles at that time, and then uh, so I had enough sources to sort of get started, and I knew what I was missing. And so as I was writing the drafts, I'm like, I need some source of information on this thing. And I would eventually find out where it was. So the problem is, that stuff is all out there to find, but how do you know what to look for, right? You have to know yeah. what you're looking for in the first place. So it was a lot of like going through old magazines and like looking at their list of sources, their bibliography, and going, oh man, look, I didn't know these sources existed. And so then I would, you know, that's how you do research as an academic. You look at the list of sources that um, a really good author has used. And then you track those sources down and you look at their sources and you just go down this rabbit hole of finding this really cool, obscure stuff. Now, so, because I, 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 and I, 
I'm only familiar and I, and I became familiar with skywalking. And listen, I've done I've done this podcast for many many years, but it's 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 odd that Star Wars has sort of been certainly in the Disney era, but I would say even in the prequel era, constantly trapped by the starvation for new new information, new novels, new movies, new TV shows. It's yeah. there's a whole industry behind um, Star Wars product as it's come out, and so yeah. it's it's difficult to find until very recent history. Um, reflective uh, and, and research-based information on the making of these films. Like, you you kind of gave the whole list right there. You had um, Skywalking, which Dale Pollock famously, as I understand, he did the the biography, but George wasn't necessarily the biggest fan of it. Um, and yeah, he never did anything he tried, like that I again. I spoke with him, and uh, George Lucas tried to sue him for defamation. Oh, wow. And he's like, he's like well... Everything I wrote is true. None of the quotes are made up. As he re- tape recorded everything, he's like, "Here, here's the tape recorder. Look, this is you saying this. What are you talking about?" He just he's very sensitive to criticism, and so he didn't like. I, I think it's a very balanced and very fair book. I don't think it paints him in a negative light at all. Other mm. than, you know, it points out some flaws and some negative things. But like, yeah, it's not a publicity piece. Like, come sure, on. yeah, it's 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 real journalism. And that kind of gets to the core of your book and, 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 and the way we look at Star Wars in general. The idea of the publicity piece versus is the, the real raw and tough uh, element of, of storytelling and, and how that process works. And, and I, I have to – what were some of the, the central contradictions or mysteries in the making of Star Wars that, that – because uh, it's a very thorough book. But like when you're initially trying to actually wade through all of it, what was the, the burning desire that, of the questions that you wanted answers? Well, I, I already knew the answers. I just had to go about proving it. Mm. And the main one was at that time, uh, this was around the time of Revenge of the Sith had just come out. And so people are like, oh, it's finally the end of the story has been told. And George Lucas was saying, yeah, it was originally one script that was 300 pages. And it was about the redemption of Darth Vader. And he was the father. And then I had to cut it into three pieces. And then I had to make it back. It's like, that's not at at all what happened. (laughs) And so the main thing was like he was trying to pass off that Darth Vader was always the father. That he had this one giant script that was basically all of the original trilogy, which is partially true in some sense, because some of the set pieces that were cut from the original script were later reused, like the Ewok yeah. uh, thing yeah. and um, some other parts. But uh, that's about it. Uh, it's just reusing old ideas. And he's done that on Indiana Jones as well. There was a Minecraft uh, minecart chase at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It, they couldn't fit it in the film, so they moved it to Temple of Doom. Mm. But you couldn't say, oh, I had Temple of Doom planned out when I wrote Raiders. All of it was one big script. It's like, no, you just reused an old idea and shuffled things around. Um, yeah. So that was – I knew that. And I knew, like, just read the early drafts. You, that's all you have to do to prove it, that he's just mm. – uh, it's a, like a publicity thing, basically. Um, to You know, I don't know. I think that's originally how it started. It started around um, – I guess the late 70s or around the time that they were making Empire Strikes Back, where he, they started saying, um, I think it was in Bantha Tracks in 1978. That's the Lucasfilm newsletter back in the day. It was, um, there's back then they were saying there's 12 films. And there's like, uh, not only is there 12 films, we have the story mapped out. Now that we have the story mapped out, we actually have scripts written for them. We're ready to go. And so it was basically a publicity thing uh, uh, when the reality was they had no idea. They had plans for 12 films, 
But the content of that was like they hadn't really beyond a few vague ideas. They hadn't really thought of anything. Well, for for the listeners, I, I, I and and for me, I think walk through the fundamental because we always have like seen articles or you know as fans have talked amongst each other about the the 12 episodes versus the nine episodes mm-hmm. versus the three versus the six what is the actual um i i guess in short uh evolution that george had after star wars becomes the mass success it is in 77 when what what is that actual evolution so he had the actors – he had um, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher under contract for three films. So he knew for sure he was going to have a trilogy. Um, and then after Star Wars was – and they actually wrote the sequel uh, to Star Wars. It's called Splinter of the Mind's Eye yep, by yep. Alan Dean Foster. And they turned it into a novel. And the idea was um, – that's why Han Solo is not in it because Harrison Ford wasn't under contract – um, and it uh, was meant to reuse a lot of the props and models and special effects uh, paraphernalia from Star Wars. So there's like a Y-Wing, and, and a lot of the ideas eventually made their way into Empire Strikes Back and into Indiana Jones, into Raiders of the Lost Ark, because it's all about an archaeological dig, and instead of the Nazis, it's the Empire, and there's you know the race against time to get this valuable mm. artifact. So it's actually very much like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, so that was really that was written before Star Wars was released, and they were going to release it as a novel first, and then adapt it into a screenplay. And then, of course, Star Wars is a huge hit, and so Lucas is like, "Well, I don't have to make this crappy low budget thing anymore. I can yeah. really expand it into this epic saga." And because he took his inspiration from the serials of the 1930s and 1940s, yeah. and the serials of the 1930s and 1940s were always twelve episodes long it was a staple of them oh. there were 12 episodes and that's why he selected okay star wars is going to be like a modern serial let's do 12 episodes and it was arbitrary it was just because the serials of of the past were 12 episodes so then they had to be okay crap now <laughs> what, what kind of plan do we have now and so if you look at um in um in Jonathan Rinsler's Making of Empire Strikes Back, yeah. which unfortunately came out after the book was published, my book was published, so I couldn't use that as a source. Um, there's many, like at one point, The Clone Wars was its own trilogy, and then there was another couple episodes, because they hadn't called Star Wars Episode Four at that point. Yeah. So they weren't locked They weren't locked into a certain number. Once he made it Episode Four, that means you can only make three prequels. So at that yeah. point, he bound himself to a prequel trilogy. But at one point, the prequels were like, six films long and then you got into the middle trilogy and then there was a cup and then there was a sequel trilogy and then he also had um I, but then it was always in flux so what, what, he narrowed it down to nine films i'm going to have a prequel trilogy this middle trilogy and then the sequel trilogy and then the remaining three films will be like one-offs so he said he wanted to make a film that was just about wookies no humans, just Wookiees. And that's, I think that's what became the holiday special. And he <laughs> wanted to do another film that was just about droids. Just the main characters were all droids. It was kind of like Wally, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, and eventually those faded away and he just settled on, okay, let's just do the nine. And there, there can be like a kind of a logical story arc. Once he made Darth Vader into Luke's father in the, in the second draft of Empire Strikes Back that he wrote himself, that's when that plot point came in, because in the first draft, Luke's Jedi father appears to Luke as a ghost on Dagobah, and he inducts Luke into the Jedi way, and he's like, avenge me. Um, <laughs> well, and then in the second draft, he didn't like that draft. George Lucas was unsatisfied with that first draft, so in the second draft, he turns Vader into the father, and he's like, whoa, this totally changes the backstory now. 
I actually have material for a really dramatic three-film thing. Because at that point, Empire Strikes Back was called Episode 2. So he's like, let's make the original Star Wars Episode 4, and then I can have this great three-film trilogy about how Luke's father falls to the dark side and mm. betrays his master and blah, blah, blah. That's like really juicy material. Yeah. And then... And then we can make another three that follows Luke as a mature Jedi. Okay, there we go. Nine films. And that's why all of a sudden one day they start saying, no, no, it's nine films. Oh, and that makes so much sense. And I love the way that you really break down by script and by date even looking at uh, you know various interviews and stuff about that, that process. Because I would say, frankly, that's the most significant change and development in Star Wars that makes it what it is today is that merger of those two characters where the father Skywalker figure becomes um, becomes Darth Vader and that's I think where you sort of you know you're alluding to it earlier where you know for us uh, prequel kids you know I remember 2004 2005 the the tragedy of 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 Darth Vader being used yeah Yeah. he said oh that's what it was called that's like no (laughs) it was called Star Wars well why what was it what was it that that in George's mind at least digging through these interviews that made him expand from what was essentially a sort of flash gordon serial adventure to this this character drama do you, at least as well, far as you can tell what was that sort of aha moment of making this sort of a a character drama and and family epic it was that moment. Um, so what happened was Lee Brackett, she's a very famous science fiction author, um, but she was very elderly at the time. Yeah. And she was, George Lucas didn't know it, but she was dying of cancer. And she wrote the first draft, including that scene where, you know, the ghost of Father Skywalker comes and he makes Luke take the oath of the Jedi and inducts him in the, in the ways of the Jedi, him and Yoda. And then they have this ritual where they like salute lightsabers at each other and stuff. Um, and it wasn't that, he didn't like that scene. It's just the tone of the draft. It's very much like um, a bit pulpy because okay. she was a pulp science fiction writer. Sure. Um, and and she died, right? She she submitted the first draft. He's like, oh, I don't really like this that much, but you know, we can work on it. It's a first draft. You know, first drafts are always kind of rough. Uh, and then he called her up to discuss it, and someone else answers the phone, and they're like, Yeah, she passed away the other day. And he's like, Oh crap! And he didn't have a writer lined up. He's like, What am I? Like, I have a deadline here. So I can narrow it down when this change took place because he was forced to write the second draft himself. And him and his wife were supposed to take a vacation in like um, either Hawaii or Mexico. It was probably Hawaii because that's like his traditional vacation spot. Yeah, uh, I think it was over the Easter uh, long weekend or something like that. And while his wife was like, you know, on the beach and stuff, he was in his hotel room writing this thing by hand. So I think it was Easter of 1978. Um, and, uh, he writing it by hand, it just kind of, it, it was a way of like sort of solving redundant story threads in that, you know, Darth Vader killed Luke's father and he was also Ben Kenobi's student. And it's like, I don't know, it's something just clicked with him and he discovered basically the process of, uh, writing the original trilogy and then writing the prequels. He kept discovering, um, bits bits of drama that he had unintentionally built into the story already. All they needed was a little bit of retconning to make them work. And um, it just kind of, it was just an organic, unplanned process. And he finished his draft and he's like, yeah, that's actually pretty good. And that changes the backstory in even better ways than I thought in the first place. At that point, Lawrence Kasdan 
when he came back from his vacation, Lawrence Kasdan handed him the first draft of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he's like, oh, thank God, I forgot about you. You're a real writer. Here, take over this draft. I'm not a good writer. Um, and then they slowly uh, re-expanded it from from that very crude second draft that he wrote. So, Yeah, it's uh, and I think fans can be forgiven, especially you know, of, of my generation uh, growing up, where when you enter Star Wars now, you you have that baggage of, of what Star Wars is now and what it's become. And if you watch mm. the original film, you know, you, you it's the famous quote of like, you know, Darth Vader, young pupil of mine, before he turned evil, hunted down and destroyed the Jedi. Like, it makes perfect sense. You're like, well, yeah, it's got to be. It's That's got to be it. But it is interesting how he sort of accidentally... And and I don't mean that to short circuit his his storytelling brilliance, but but it, he did. He has this odd habit of sort of accidentally falling into this fantastic dramatic story. In the in the film industry, they call those happy accidents. Yeah, that's fair, and it happens all the time. Well, and and, and I think yeah, we see that, in, especially with franchises that the way they are now the way they are now but it's it's it, you you talk a little bit you sort of compared and contrasted briefly his process with the original trilogy versus the prequels i, I kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit more on like um with whether it's the story conferences that you talk about for empire versus the uh prequels whether it's the other writers and the sort of informal uh help that he had is it is it a fair characterization that there was some combination of lucas whether it's through lack of interest and abandonment he didn't have his cadre of filmmaking you know film school friends helping him out and also yeah, they had, his unwillingness they had kind of drifted apart and become successful on their own and yeah. they, they kind of you know, when you're young, when you're in your 20s and early 30s, you can kind of collaborate with your buddies and work as a group. But then people's careers take them in their own directions and everyone just kind of drifted apart and did their own thing. Gotcha. Right? Um, t- some to success and some to not success. Like John Milius had a, a successful early career, but then it kind of fizzled out. Um, so not everyone was a success. But uh, yeah, they all just became rich and famous in their own way and uh, just found a new sort of bunch of collaborators. Hmm. Well, and because I, I noticed that it just seems that there was a contrast in the way, because George seemed to really struggle with and, and be frustrated by the process of, of Empire Strikes Back, the, the production, the budget, the mm-hmm. things running over time. And is, is this overplayed? Like why he sort of retreated to kind of handling everything himself, you know, a la more control freak? Or or you think no. that's a fair criticism of, of the way he approached the prequels? He's he's always been a bit of a control freak, but I think back then he kind of um, was very much aware of his limitations. But he always wanted to have sort of final say. But when it came to writing and directing, he would admit, I'm not that good at it. So if someone else can do it, all the better. Um, I can come up with the ideas and sort of steer the ship and someone else can do in what is in his mind the dirty work of writing and uh, directing as long as he can kind of look over their shoulder and – you know, like sort of the way a producer would sort of guide the writing process, guide the directing process, but be sort of hands off about it. Just provide provide support, provide feedback, make sure it's not going off the deep end, basically. And um, an empire turned out way different than he wanted it to. And it kind of burned him. Like, it's not that it was like, I think he realizes that it turned out well, but mm. it's just different than he wanted. Um if you look at the prequels, 
if you compare the first draft of Star Wars from 1974 to um, Phantom Menace, they're very much cut from the same cloth. So that's kind of Phantom Menace is sort of what George Lucas was closer to what George Lucas was going for with the first draft of Star Wars. And of course, everyone that read it said, this is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, if anyone had seen the script to Phantom Menace, like if you had to collaborate, they're like, no, this doesn't work. You gotta, there's something in there, but you gotta rewrite it. Well, I gotta ask what, um, what were some of the similarities? Um, it's just very high fantasy, um, Mm. very, um, uh, very, uh, elaborate, lots of planets, lots of big, uh, huge sets, lots of, Tons of characters, lots of aliens, and lots of um, things that were things that would have been impossible. No matter how much money they had in 1977, couldn't have been done. You could have given them a hundred million dollars. It, it's just technically would not have been possible to do a lot of the things. Yeah. Um, you know, lots of creatures. More, more. It's more, more exotic. It's more like a like a comic book or like a Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter of Mars type of thing. Um, if you're familiar with that, yeah, um, that's kind of the vibe I get. Um, and uh, just over the course of getting feedback, it became more and more f- grounded and more focused on a limited number of characters uh, that were initially very, very stiff. If you read the second draft of Star Wars, um, it's basically he had reconfigured it into closer to the storyline that we actually got, but the characters are terrible. The dialogue is like embarrassingly bad. But then over the next couple of drafts, getting more feedback, he reworked it and reworked it. And then the final draft, he had the dialogue uh, was rewritten. Not all of it, but like probably like 30% of it was rewritten by his friends, um, uh, Gloria Katz and Willard Hike. They're married, actually. Um, but they're heard. professional writers, and they're good at writing snappy one-liners and stuff. They wrote American Graffiti. Well, and um, I, I know that... So, so they, they made the dialogue more believable. And they, I they know they were sort of part of that. A bit more uh, subtext as well. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we were looking, working with a little delay here, but yeah, they, they, they were part of that original kind of crew that George famously uh, came up with. Yep. Uh, I, I wonder. So, as if not only were George's ambitions about this uh, sort of grand saga of of stories that he could tell, the twelve episodes mimicking the the serials as as Star Wars became this huge success. There's the I think probably to me the most fascinating part of the book that's that I, I haven't encountered because I'm familiar with with J.W. Rensler's book. I, I, I purchased them earlier this year as as a part of my ongoing kind of you know diving more into the behind the scenes of the original trilogy. Those books are fantastic. They I love are. Them. We had them. Um, we had them on the show a few weeks ago and 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 oh. talked a little bit about it. But it, there was this and 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 uh, Jonathan Rensler talked about it too. But there was this sort of dual ambition where the other part of George's. A development was this his his hatred of of Hollywood as it was, and mm-hmm. his contemporaries kind of seemed to share that sentiment, and he had this grand vision of what would become Skywalker Ranch, and and I think that becomes a part of what he wanted Empire and Jedi to be, um, and and I was curious they, they were well he's got on record actually admitting like the main reason we're making Star Wars sequels is to pay for the ranch that's the main thing that's my goal. 
and the Star Wars sequels. Not that it, not that he was just in it for the money, but he's like, this is going to make that dream a reality. These films because they're going to be successful. Well, and I know you, of all the guys who've who've really you know researched George through this time period, I, could you kind of paint that picture a little bit of what he was actually attempting to create and push for? Because now we just kind of look back and kind of see what what it was. But I I feel like a lot of us don't appreciate. You know this this ethereal idea of a Hollywood North getting out of L.A. and having you know true independence with filmmaking. Yeah, so um, uh, like I went to film school, and going to film school, you make a lot of friends, you make a lot of contacts and stuff like that, and um, they all were like, you know, L.A. is kind of a scum city, you know, and it's all phony Hollywood, and you know, they just didn't like the vibe, and so he was he. They created um, American Zootrope initially. They tried to do this experiment, which is um, sort of like a filmmaker's club, basically, where they they rented like a, it was almost like a warehouse that they converted into an office uh, somewhere in the L.A. region. Um, and there was a bunch of filmmakers could drop in and hang one time. They'd have all these parties like one time Akira Kurosawa dropped by <laughs> and there'd be like um, – uh, who's the guy that did the Campbell's soup artwork? Um, Andy, what's his name? Oh, I don't know. You know, I, I'm blanking on it, but I know who you're talking it's about. On the, anyway, they'd have all these like hippies and artists, and they'd have all these wild parties, and they'd get together and they'd collaborate and they'd make movies together, and they had their own equipment as well. And so the first film they made was THX 1138. That was like their premiere. Here we go. This is what we're all about. And everyone was like, what the hell is this? Like, no one understood it. Mm. And the uh, they had a deal with, I think, Warner Brothers. Yeah, it must have been Warner Brothers uh, to do eight, I think, six or eight films or something like that. One of which was Apocalypse Now. Mm. And after the screening of THX, they canceled the deal. And um, oh. and so so that was the first attempt and so but it fell apart and partially because of George Lucas's fault but it's really because the executives that they made a deal with all, all they knew was Easy Rider was the biggest hit of all time like the most profitable movie in history at that point point. Yeah. and they're like we don't we don't understand what these young people are doing all we know is if you leave them alone it makes money and then they saw <laughs> THX and they're like i think maybe we were wrong about this and so they canceled the deal and George decided he was going to move to um, the San Francisco area, and he was able to convince some of his close friends to come up there. And they were, with the profits of American Graffiti, they were able to set up, they were able to buy a second house that they used as an office. George lived around the corner, and uh, they called it Park House because it was on a street called Parkway, I think. Uh, I actually found the house on <laughs> Google Maps. It's still there. Um, but it was basically like an old huge like almost victorian style house and uh so matthew robbins had an office there uh walter merch had an office there um and other friends would drop by and stuff and they would they would write and it would the whole point was and george would go there and write and um you could you could check in on each other and share ideas because you're all in the same building basically yeah and it was in a residential neighborhood, so they weren't even sure if they could use it as an office. But, like, at San Francisco, no one cares. And they could walk down the street, and there was all these cafes down the street. And they could just hang out, and it was just this really good, like, almost like a film school environment. And um, and that was basically, George was like, well, why can't we do this, but, like, on a grand scale? We'll have, like, a research library if you want to conduct research. And uh, we'll have, like, editing suites, and we'll have a high tech uh sound mixing 
place, which was Skywalker Sound. And then uh, by the time he finished building it, um, so the profits of Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi were supposed to finance it, which they did. And by the time it was completed uh, shortly after um, uh, Return of the Jedi came out, George Lucas got divorced. His friends went in different directions. They weren't even in the Bay Area anymore. And uh, so it just kind of sat there unused with just – it's just like for the benefit of George Lucas, like lonely and depressed by himself because he became depressed after he got divorced, right? So yeah. it, was, it was a real dark time in his life and like his dream that all this sacrifice because he was like telling his wife like, I know that this is like a crazy time right now. But don't worry. Once this is done, we can settle down, and it'll be we'll just reap the rewards of all this sacrifice. And so after all that sacrifice, it all came out to nothing. It became just his personal, uh, you know, filmmaking building thing, and that's why he became known as a recluse. Because you know, so in order that now they had this great facility that they had to maintain the overhead for, but there was no clients coming in, so that's why they had to start farming out skywalker sound to other productions and stuff because just to pay the yeah. bills well it's funny because you you touched on it briefly i actually i have it on my notes that i wanted to ask you about because that's something understandably that's not talked about in any official um you know history of of star wars or lucasfilm because it's a it's a it's a real it's a personal tragedy i you know it's kind of what i'm sure will make an incredible like george lucas biopic at some point when there's like a, a um a, some <laughs> actually there was a a a couple of producers that came to me that wanted to purchase the rights to the book because they wanted to make a story, a biography about George Lucas's life. And they're like, the way you framed it, like I couldn't tell the story of the making of Star Wars without telling the story of George Lucas himself because mm. they're so intrinsically tied. And some, even some of the creative decisions he made because of personal things in his life. It wasn't necessarily he thought this was best for the story. It's just, you know, your personal life kind of informs the creative work that you do, right? Yeah, and it's one of those things where, as as he went through Empire and Jedi, famously, it was it was very taxing on on his on his health, on his family, uh, and and on his marriage. And and he he exited the original trilogy, and 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 I feel like people we just don't know this. Uh, I didn't know it until I I'd, I'd read the book where he, the the sort of dark times, quote unquote, of Star Wars, where Star Wars went away. Where frankly Lucasfilm went away, that that was it coincided exactly when his his marriage fell apart. What he had tried to achieve to set up and then kind of have this fraternity of filmmakers uh, really kind of collapsed a little bit. And and I it's it's a very personally compelling but tragic story. And well, and to add insult to injury, um, the woman, the man that his wife left him for was one of the workers on Skywalker Ranch. He designed the stained glass for the library. Oh, wow. And that's that, that, that's, that's Shakespearean poetry tra- yeah. slash tragedy for you right there. Um, well, I think she was like kind of the interior decorator. Um, that was like her informal role because she had no work. She wanted to, she was waiting to start a family. So it was something to keep her busy. And I think that's how she ended up meeting him. Yeah. And it's it it is tragic, but what was the um process where the where Lucasfilm began to establish, establish it, itself more when and where I don't know, the um I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. But where, where his vision kind of began to be fulfilled eventually coming out of the dark times as more and more films began to be produced there. 
uh, because it is the incubator for so many incredible like, like ILM work for a lot of the films from the 90s onward. Um, yeah, well, in the, in the 90s, in the early 90s, um, Star Wars kind of made a comeback out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, in like 1991, mostly because of Timothy Zahn's um, Hair to the Empire trilogy. Yep. Uh, no one, no one knew that there was this pent up demand for Star Wars. Because if you ask someone in like 1987, which was the 10th anniversary of the original film about Star Wars, they'd be like, "Oh, that's like yesterday's news. We're all about Back to the Future and Ghostbusters and Top Gun and all that, with Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and stuff." Um, so it was kind of seemed like this passe thing. Um, and then all of a sudden, it came back with a vengeance in the early 90s, and it gave them a shot of money that was desperately needed. Um, and as a result of that, you know, they had been making, uh, you know, Last Crusade came out in 1989. And then uh, it basically, like most of George Lucas's fortune was made from the merchandising. And so the main yeah. thing that came back in the early 90s was the merchandising. It was like a second wave of mer- merchandising. And so that's why they were able to do Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. And George Lucas always had in the back of his mind that, like, you know, one day I would like to do the prequels. It was always something that... He kind of he had been kind of promising it vaguely, but he was like, I don't know, I don't know how sincere he was. If he was like, well, if I change my mind, I can always do these other films, and that's that's one thing that he was uh, part of his decision in around 1993 after he saw Jurassic Park, and he realized, okay, I can actually make these prequels the way I want them to be now. And he had to have he said he had to sit down and have a soul searching discussion with himself. That he wanted to return to directing, and his kids were old enough now that he didn't have to be, you know, his young, his youngest son was like four or five, yeah. so he wasn't a baby anymore. So he could he could afford to go back to directing, and he had to say to himself, "Do I want to direct these Star Wars prequels, or do I want to go off and do all these other crazy ideas that I've developed over the years?" And his decision was basically like he wasn't that financially independent at that time, not as much as he became. Like, I mean, I'm sure he was still a millionaire, but like it takes more than that to make a blockbuster movie. Yeah. And part of his decision was, no, Star Wars has never been hotter. And now is the time. If I make these movies now, they'll make a million dollars. They'll make millions of dollars. And then I can use that money and I can just make whatever I want after that. I don't, mm. I'll be so financially insecure. Or I can make these other crazy movies I want right now that probably are not going to be successful, and that'll be all the money. I just blew it all, and I'm going to be left with, you know, not that much in comparison. Um, so, you know, it was like the audience is there, and now is the time to do it. The technology is there, the audience is there, my family's old enough, and so he decided to uh, to do it then. But, uh, yeah, it was mainly the uh, the merchandise that sort of kicked things up. And also uh, LucasArts as well had a really big, strong early 90s run. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We uh, we were just talking off air before the show about um, Knights of the Old Republic. I know that was a little bit later, but whether it was um, Shadows of the Empire and that whole publishing uh, initiative. There was like X-Wing, TIE Fighter, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. Mm-hmm. Um, there was all those LucasArts adventure games um, like The Dig and uh, I don't know, Full Throttle. There were some early ones from the early 90s that I'm forgetting. Uh, Maniac Mansion, I think, was another one. Um, so, yeah, and they were so desperate for money in the late 80s that they sold their computer division uh, off to Steve Jobs, and it became Pixar. <laughs> That's how desperate they were for money. They sold Pixar, essentially. Yeah, I, it, it does, like, that financial reality probably 
it had to play a role in 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 him kickstarting the production. Yeah, yeah. Well, because he he knew it was like it was from a business perspective, it was the smart thing to do. And the whole thing was he kept saying, "Yeah, I'm only making these movies so I can make these experimental movies." Ah. And then once once he once he finished the trilogy, he just made more Star Wars and more Indiana Jones. <laughs> so <laughs> like, what you're you're just full of hot air, it seems. Because he was saying that after. After American Graffiti came out, it was a very big commercial hit. He goes, now I'm going to make these crazy experimental films. Cause <laughs> That's I think what he's been saying he's, for he's, years. He's very uncomfortable with being associated with um, mainstream success because he wants to be considered an artistic experimental filmmaker. So Graffiti comes out. He's like, I'm going to make films more, more like THX, experimental weird films. But instead he made Star Wars, which you could say in some ways was experimental, but it's also – very mainstream and after that came out he's like well i'm gonna go back to my filmmaking roots and make experimental films and then he said the same thing after return of the jedi came out but he never did and then he said the same thing during the prequels and he never did he just made the clone wars cartoon series <laughs> and he made indiana jones and the crystal skull and then he sold it all to disney <laughs> well it's it's it is funny because and and now he's saying that currently is like i'm gonna make my experimental films oh and, uh, he's never gonna make another movie ever again he's done yeah you think so yeah, he's done. Yeah. He, he he might produce things like he'll attach his name and give him some money, but he'll he'll never direct anything ever again. Yeah, it's like ah, oh, it's that museum, damn museum. He's like seventy five or eighty. He's too old. Yeah. If he was fifty five, yeah. I'd say yes. He's gonna he's gonna do something. He'll do at least one. It's is it a tragedy? It's it's weird. He it's, it's the strangest guy. Like 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 each time. It, it seems like he sort of hit the height of success, started Skywalker Ranch, like we talked about, and then his the sort of personal tragedy it blacked out what may have been years of his most creative. If he launched straight into the more Star Wars movies, but just had other directors and they were all producing them at Skywalker Ranch. And even as late as before the Disney purchase, I remember him um, looking to expand property to, to do 789 himself. That was something he considered, right, before before selling to Disney? Uh, yeah, they moved um, uh, the head of Lucasfilm to was it the Presidio? Is that what it's called? I, I it was say, a new facility. Yeah, they out, they outgrew they outgrew their old headquarters basically. Yeah, I, yeah. It's it, but yet yet that that decade was lost, and then of course see through financial necessity and and, and you know and and creative drive as In well. Personal. It wasn't like he was doing it just for the money. He sure. wanted to tell the story, but the money was the deciding factor. Yeah, and and it makes sense when you when you say it that way, and it and then he has this sort of parting of ways with well he he parts with, and I guess we'll kind of fast forward to today. Um, well, actually, no, I have to. All right, sorry. Before I jump into the sort of transition as he leaves, you know, Star Wars permanently, and we've now been you know now five years post Disney films, um, but I have to ask you about Revenge of the Sith. So the, the, the whole tragedy of, of Darth Vader, even by the time he was writing the script for Revenge of the Sith, that wasn't, as I was reading the book, I, I found it fascinating that that wasn't really fully solid on, on exactly how he was going to determine the fall of Anakin Skywalker. Well, basically, actually, just just, just jump back to your other point, because yeah. I have just one thing to add oh, yeah, yeah. about how how uh, George Lucas, you know, he could have made all these really creative things, but he never did because he got trapped by Star Wars. I think um, Francis Coppola had a really good quote. I'm paraphrasing it. Yeah. But he said something like, um, Star Wars robbed 
filmmaking of one of the greatest experimental filmmakers that never was or something like that. Mm, yeah. I mean, it's hard to yeah, say it's anyway, not true. Yeah. I'm um, going back to your point. Uh, oh yes. The tragedy of Darth Vader. Um, so the original conception of how Anakin would fall to the dark side was sort of like in the original trilogy, it was almost like it was like a drug. Like once you had tasted it, you would be tempted by it and you'd go back to it over and over and then you'd slowly lose your way and be corrupted yeah. by it. When, once you go down um, that the dark thing path. Was like the yeah. So corrupted that it, it, it even corrupted his flesh. Like that was sort of the idea behind why the emperor is like this withered old wizard guy. It's because he was so powerful that with the dark side that had like destroyed his body. Um, and the original idea for Anakin, that was kind of his conception of the dark side at the time. It was like, and I think the setup was his massacre of the Tuscan Raiders. If you can do that, um, you know, what are you capable of? And you'll you'll go back to the well again and again, and slowly but surely, you'll slowly get corrupted. And it just it didn't work. It didn't work at all. He hadn't set it up properly. He hadn't communicated it properly. It wasn't. It was like so. It wasn't even subtle. It just like it wasn't really even there. Like if you were to explain to someone that, then you'd be like, oh, okay, I, I kind of see it. I, yeah, I, I guess I kind of see it. But um, and during the editing, he decided to take out a bunch of scenes, and all of a sudden, scenes that were never supposed to be next to each other were now next to each other, and it gave him, it gave a different context. And he started getting, oh, what if it's like this uh, Shakespearean thing where he tries to, he's convinced that his wife will die, and that was always there. That was always one part of it, mm. but it was like a minor part. But suddenly, when you took out all these other scenes to get the running time down, that point became more and more emphasis, uh, emphasized, and then when he went back for reshoots, all the reshoots are supporting that and bringing that to the forefront. So when he was editing it, Again, just like when he turned Vader into the father, he found an element that was implanted in his story that was already there that he could take and run with and give uh, sort of a different context or a different flavor or a different subtext or however you want to describe it, a different trajectory to the storyline and to the character. Yeah. Which raises a very bizarre question because it's like if the only reason – He's going to the dark side is to save his wife, so he's not corrupted by evil. It's just like a misplaced love almost. How do you go from that to like killing kids like 10 seconds later? It's like that made sense when it was like he was so corrupted he could kill women and children in the Tuscan Raider camp. Well, you know, one more film down the line, he can kill human children now, right? So that I think that was his setup. Yeah. That, um, but it doesn't really – it's kind of – very very inconsistent and he admits that he's like you know i have a he doesn't really uh mention that scene specifically but he's like you know after he turns to the dark side there's a really hard left turn and it's kind of hard to swallow now but i think the film even though that i, I believe he's referring to the scene where he kills the kids um but he's like but the the storyline it just it makes more emotional sense the way it is even though there's some things that are a bit weird because it was kind of like the film was totally broken apart and then stitched back together and then expanded again with reshoots. So it's almost like the final draft was written in the editing room. It's interesting. Yeah. And it, I, I had no idea because you would think, you know, you're coming in on the sixth film and what at the time was the final Star Wars film um, that, that that would have been more solidified. And, and to me, that's an example of where the, the final story, I think, works better, even though it's a little clunky in the editing room. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that. 
the the sort of poetry of him, his desire to to almost possessively keep Padme, is 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 what you know directly makes him responsible. He himself responsible for losing her um, when mm-hmm. he force chokes her in the final scenes. And you're like, dang! So like you you know you're going to Yoda and then Palpatine trying to figure out how to save Padme. Um, but, but yeah, see, you know, a thing, a, a scene like that, that made more sense when it was sort of like, he's slowly getting more corrupted and he's slowly losing his mind to the point where he, he's choking his wife. Like he never would have even thought of that, you know, at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And so, um, so that makes more sense when you consider the original sort of motivation. It makes less sense when I, I don't, I don't like, I mean, it doesn't really stand out that much to me as an inconsistency. Like you kind of go with it. But um, once once you know the sort of behind the scenes, you can kind of see where the original hmm. motivation was and where the rewritten one comes in. Sure, yeah, and I, and I'm sure the next time I'm watching Revenge of the Sith, it'll it'll play a little differently for me um, mm-hmm. because of that. And it's but it is it's it's a really fascinating way, and I and I think and I'll be honest, in, sometimes the book Michael it comes a, across. In, a, in an exposing form of like because of George's tendency to sort of maybe intentionally or maybe unintentionally rewrite history and 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 rewrite what his intentions were at the time, I I think sometimes we as fans just forget how messy the storytelling process is. Yeah, um, the one thing that becomes abundantly clear when you um, uh, examine the writing of the prequels, you know, he legitimately had most of the story written out but he really only had enough story for like one movie at the most like barely one movie Hmm. and so like but he had numerically bound himself to a trilogy and so that's why what you discover is that basically episode one is totally made up from scratch there's nothing about it is from the original uh ideas he had it was totally 100 percent made up from scratch not a single thing in there is from the original storyline he had in his head he never even really wrote it down and episode two the only thing that that really uh, he had is that uh, Palpatine uh, manipulates his way into becoming the chancellor or into becoming from the chancellor to creating a, an army for himself and staying yeah. in power using emergency powers. And Anakin, you know, starts falling to the dark side and starts clashing with uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's it. <laughs> All that's And the Clone Wars, I guess, are there somewhere. He didn't really know what the Clone Wars were that much. Yeah. It's like very vague. Um, and that's about it. So he, he kind of just made it all up as he went. I think he kind of assumed that the story would kind of write itself because he's like, yeah, I've had this story in my head for, you know, 25 years or whatever. And yeah. then he's like, oh, no, I, I don't have enough. I have enough material for episode three. And even then I'm going to have to expand it a little bit. Yeah. So I think he was uh, a, a bit of a pain in the butt for poor Rick McCallum as he was, as they were waiting for the scripts to come in on time. Man, man, that guy is like a miracle worker, man. He's he's such a good producer. I know people criticize him because he's a yes man, and he is. But if he wasn't a yes man, George Lucas would have fired him and got someone who was. He wanted someone that wasn't going to challenge him creatively. Uh, he wanted someone that would make the production run smooth because George is the boss. He's the one with the money, right? He's the one paying your salary. So just do what he says. Yeah. Um, and actually, by the time they got to Revenge of the Sith, McCallum had kind of figured out how to subtly sort of prod Lucas into like better directions. Like he he insisted on getting an acting coach for um, Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman because he's like they're young. 
um, and they need a capable director. Like Natalie Portman, she's terrible in the prequels, but in other movies, she's fantastic because she's dependent on the skills of her director. Uh. Give her a poor director, you get a poor performance. Give her a good director who can work with actors, he can. they can pull a great Oscar-winning performance out of her. And especially back then, she was like a teenager, right? So yeah. she needed a strong guiding hand, and Lucas just wasn't that person. So by then, McCallum was like, all right, um... We're going to do a lot of rehearsals and we're going to work with this acting coach. And that's why I think the performances in Revenge of the Sith are like, you compare it to Attack of the Clones, it's like night and day almost. It's it really still not is. Exactly great performances, but it's noticeably improved. It is. I mean, frankly, that's uh, Revenge of the Sith for the longest time was my favorite Star Wars film, uh, primarily because of the, the way the drama plays out, especially in that final act. Like, you see Hayden Christensen's performance as he loses Padme and embraces the dark side. Like, he's, even though it's kind of choppy in the editing and the motivation is, is, could have been clear in some ways by nature mm-hmm. of the way the story developed, he still sells it and he does a, a brilliant job doing it. Yeah. And especially if you look at um, throughout, the, like, what's the most consistent performances across the films? Probably Ian McGregor and Ian McDermott, I'd say, right? Like, yeah. they're, they're never bad. I mean, Ian McGregor in, in The Phantom Menace doesn't really have a whole lot to do. But um, but they're older, experienced actors. So when the director is not there to guide them, they're like, don't worry, we can direct ourselves because they have the experience and the talent. But the younger stars, they don't, they don't have enough experience. Like Hayden Christensen was like 19. Uh, Natalie Portman was 14 when they made Phantom Menace. Like they didn't have the experience to self-direct. So that's why their performances are mm. like – kind of choppy in places until you get to revenge of the sith where they're at least kind of consistently good um and that's i i credit that to the acting coach they had weeks of rehearsals before they began filming you know you say that it kind of reminds me of of alec guinness in the original because his performance stands out so much versus peter cushion (laughs) yeah exactly like their performances uh, and it's funny because of course years later he was all he was a little bitter about star wars overshadowing his his illustrious career but it is like he legit a lot of that's because of how great of his performance was in it well if you look at his early interviews and like um you know reports of like what he was like he was totally on board with it and thought it was a good movie he's like yeah this is like a cool fairy tale it's like positive for young people it's an interesting role i've never been in a production like this and he was and he thought he, he had seen american graffiti and was very impressed with george lucas so he he was very much positive about it and then once it came out and it kind of yeah like overshadowed him that's when he was like oh it's rubbish blah 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 <laughs> well yeah very in a very british way <laughs> we yeah. must admit um yeah man i dude i could talk to you all night but i i, I really appreciate you shining some light um on the podcast and uh about some of the incredible stuff. I, if you haven't, I, I will take a moment to say, seriously, go go purchase yourself a copy, whether it's Audible, whether it's on Amazon, uh, Secret History of Star Wars. I, I can't recommend it enough. I have been on the show uh, recommending it. Some of our Patreon supporters have, have been talking about it as they've picked it up. And and it's just, no, I've, I've loved it, man. And I, I have to kind of ask, maybe as a, a, a parting shot here, um, I want to kind of get your take on, as someone who's really delved in on in the deep end of the production of lucasfilm in the george lucas era what what's the deal (laughs) that's that's the question i have what's the deal with the disney era like it's it's fascinating to me the we thought there was division in the prequel era 
Uh, I actually don't know like where you stand personally on what you think of the various Disney films, but but what what do you think are some of the biggest differences that you've observed just as a fan as Star Wars changed hands to the Disney Corporation versus when George ran things? Um, well, one could argue that, oh, they, they didn't have a long-term plan and they're making it up as they go. But at the same time, all the, Star, all the George Lucas Star Wars films, the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy, they were all made up as they went too, and any plan they made proved to be temporary because it was always changing. Yeah. Um, so there was, never was a plan from the beginning that was followed through, um, other than the fact, yeah, I mean, it was always in flux. So that's, but I think for for the um, for the sequel trilogy, they needed to they needed to make a plan and stick with it, and that's the biggest problem that people have. It's like Force Awakens going one way. Well. Last Jedi is going another way. Oh no! Here comes Rise of Skywalker. It's not only is it going in a different direction than Last Jedi. It's even going in a different direction than Force Awakens hinted that because now Snoke is dead and Luke is dead and blah blah blah. So they needed, uh, and then they've been hiring people, firing people. This project's on. This project's canceled now. Now we have a new one. It just seems like they're schizophrenic or something. And I don't blame Kathleen Kennedy for that because I think a lot of those decisions are coming from the top above her, from people higher up than her, like oh, the, whoever's running Disney. Yeah. And they're saying, no, we need this, we need diversity. And I think she's like on board for a lot of that. But I, I would blame the Disney bureaucracy. Uh, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. And um, But they should they, – they really need to plan long term and stick with it because these films – don't make themselves. And I can't believe they don't take a, a, a hint from Marvel and that they had a long-term plan. And yeah, I'm sure the individual films, they sort of made up some things, but they sort of knew where they were going in the end. They knew it would end in Infinity War and Endgame. Yeah. Um, and they knew how to get there. So it, like, you know, they say like, oh, how do you write a good uh, mystery novel? Well, you write the ending and then you figure, and then you trace backwards, Right. To, to, so you can yeah. so you know where you're going, um, and I think I think that's the the biggest flaw that they have because you know what like the one-offs like Rogue One was good I liked it um, Solo I was preparing to hate it and then I was like oh it's actually pretty decent I I thought it was like a fun kind of small-scale Star Wars film. I, it's aged, I would like more of that. It's aged well. Yeah, it's a fun watch yeah. on Disney+. Plus. It, even though it made no money, no one went to see it, I was like, <laughs> wow, it's, it's, I was expecting a train wreck, and it was, like, pretty decent. Yeah. Is it, it's, it's kind of funny. Would you say it's fair to say that Star Wars is, has, in some ways, fallen victim to the very elements of, of big Hollywood productions that George Lucas hated so much in the beginning? Yeah, in some ways, like it's part of a mega. It's part of the biggest movie corporation in the world. Mm. You know, it's. But I mean, yeah, you could say that. But at the same time, like the merchandising machine of Star Wars has been there from the beginning. It's always been about making money, making toys, selling toys. What else can we sell them? Comic books, novels, stickers, underoos, shampoo. Put Star Wars name (laughs) on everything. Um, so yeah. that's all, I mean, if you accuse Disney of selling out and selling Star Wars, well, look at the holiday I mean, special, look at the million cartoons, like the Ewok cartoon sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen it. I'm, there's a lot of, there's a lot of junk Star Wars products <laughs> that they were just putting out there as a shill. 
It's right? So that's always been part of it. You can't say, oh, George Lucas had integrity. And then he's like altering the films and saying, no, I was, I was intended for Han to shoot for second. Or It's like, uh, <laughs> like I, George Lucas ruined Star Wars before Disney did. It's just <laughs> like, I mean, people have been complaining about so-and-so ruining Star Wars since Return of the Jedi. Well, I mean, yeah. And listen, as a as a longtime Star Wars apologist and a kid of the prequel generation, I'm the one who like, you know what? I kind of like everything George did. And, and I, But I sort of see all of the flaws, especially the prequels, when you look at George Lucas kind of striking out on his own and, and, and you know, writing yeah. the scripts himself. Like, you see those flaws, but there's still, to me, a, a magic uh, in those films. And frankly, I think there's some magic in some of the Disney era films. I love pretty much most of the Disney films. They each have their flaws. Certainly, I the, really the liked do. The Last Jedi, and I know a lot of people are like, oh, you, I immediately <laughs> discount everything you said before that. And now, like, it's, everything it's you said in the interview so far. All, <laughs> yeah, no, but you know what? There, there's only two great Star Wars films. A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. They're great. Everything else is either good or average. You yeah. know? Return of the Jedi? Yeah, it's good. It's not great. Mm-hmm. Phantom Menace? I have a lot of nostalgia for Phantom Menace. I think it's a great whimsical uh, kids film yeah but it's got major flaws it's not great it's either average or good and the only film i'd say that is bad is uh, attack of the clones i really don't think much <laughs> of that even though i liked it more than phantom menace upon first viewing but yeah. like if you were to like map it on like a bell curve it makes sense at one end you got the two great films and then at the other hand you have like you know people would argue that uh phantom menace and Attack of the Clones are like the bad ones. And then everything else is kind of in the middle. They're kind mm. of like good, but they have flaws. Yeah. And so like that makes sense. Like if you have a franchise with like, what is it, 10 films now or something like that? Yeah. More than that, 11. Um, I mean, 12 if you count the Clone Wars movie. <laughs> sorry. Please, I just, it, I, it's going <laughs> to throw the whole bell curve off if we do that. <laughs> uh, sorry, I had to go there. Um. <laughs> yeah. I don't uh, know what the hell that what that was about. That was just like I was like, listen, this is so bad. The, the, I mean, grant, granted, it was just episodes of a TV show that they stitched together. But even if it was a TV show, I'm like, this is a bad TV show. And I <laughs> love the Clone Wars. It became a great show. Oh sure, yeah. Well, it's funny, Clone Wars. As a brief aside, Clone Wars kind of became, I think, George's Trojan horse to make all the weird stuff that he wanted to make. Because there are some freaking, there's some great episodes. There's some freaking weird episodes of the Clone Wars. Mm-hmm. Well, like not to like uh, harp on George Lucas, but he was very involved with the uh, Clone Wars movie, and part of his yeah. his his vision for it was he wanted it to be. Do you, are you familiar with Thunderbirds, the marionette you know, show I'm, where they fly rocket ships? I just by what it is culturally, I've never seen it. Okay, so it's basically uh, they're marionette puppets, and it's like uh, they, they're like part of some space force type thing, and you know it's marionettes, so they move around very janky, right? And he wanted Clone Wars to be like a 3D version of Thunderbirds. And that's why if you watch the animation in that, that movie, um, that was – George Lucas had a lot of heavy involvement in that. And that's why there's a lot of like poop humor and stuff like that. And the animation's all weird. And, and then slowly he moved away and Dave Filoni took over more and more until he completely took over. And that's why season one kind of – the movie is not good. It's terrible. And then the first few episodes of season one, when George Lucas was kind of involved, they're okay, but they're kind of they had to iron some things out. And then the more and more George Lucas stepped away um, in terms of being hands on, 
um, Dave Filoni took over, the more and the better the animation got, the better the stories got, and um, yeah, and you so really see like when you hear and when you hear Dave talk about it, you really sort of get the sense because he's Dave is so uh, reverential, and and now John Favreau with Mandalorian are so mm-hmm. reverential towards George, but I think that they they very expertly have have uh, sat at the feet of the master so to speak and and pulled the lessons learned but been able to translate that into the disney era in a way that a lot of the filmmakers haven't because like half of them got fired (laughs) obviously so it's interesting that dave and and now john favreau with mandalorian have sort of carved out now that we've had a a a season of clone wars in the in the disney era it's interesting Mm -hmm. how they've sort of carved out their own place as sort of the the heirs apparent to at least George Lucas's philosophy yeah. of storytelling and have earned themselves, I would say, an almost ironic amount of adulation from Star Wars fans who are now uh, very like, like, oh, we miss George Lucas and we love the prequels so much. Like, did you guys really? Did you? <laughs> yeah, like flashback to like 2001, go on those message boards. I was all over them. It was a civil war of fans. People think, oh, the Disney era is so divisive. No, no, no. This is child's play. It only seems a bit more pronounced because of social media. Yeah. If you went back to the 2000, 2001, man, it was a bloodbath. It, this is nothing. This is absolutely nothing. I was mm. there, and I was participating in it. This is nothing. <laughs> like, people say, oh, this is the most divisive thing. I hate Disney. It's like, you must be about 18 years old, because if you were older than 25 or 30, you would know what it was like back then. And let yeah. me tell you, this is like a skirmish. Yeah. This will blow over. You know, I appreciate that because I, I, I'm just young enough to where I, I, I never, I missed any of the sort of prequel era of internet culture. It was ugly. It was so ugly. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, all right. I, I really should. I've got. I'm, I'm gonna have to unfortunately wrap it up. But man, I, I gotta say, I just really appreciate you. Um, and it's been absolutely as. Uh, rewarding as I could have hoped uh, to talk to you, man, because it's like I said at the very beginning, it's an element of the production of Star Wars, something that, you know, has become so meaningful to me just because of its myth and story um, to, to learn about the the trials and tribulations that went into the creation of especially the original trilogy, but the prequels, too. Um, no one ever talks about the prequels evolution uh, so uh, like I think that's in some ways more interesting just because no no one cares yeah and so no one looks into it yeah no but listen to quote a great Star Wars line I care uh, yeah. <laughs> Michael, I, I care too that's why I was like I need to know this Michael I, I really appreciate it we'll we'll hopefully be able to get you back on the show and talk some more uh, in the future especially maybe digging into some of the the Disney era. I've got to ask you um, is there any any place that you'd like to point people to to check out your further work or uh, any presence online that you'd like to uh, point people um, to I, I used to have a website it's uh, no longer up I'm working on retooling it putting it up um if you want to buy the book best place to go is amazon it's cheap there uh because i think full price is like 50 bucks or something but amazon's like 29 dollars uh for a 600 page book that's actually a pretty good price do um, it so yeah if you want to pick it up that's where i direct you to yeah awesome and then of course that yeah it is also I'm, I'm that guy uh on audible which uh yeah, expertly and actually mm-hmm. the, the audio book is actually very well done i was very impressed with it yeah yeah i forget the name of the guy he has an excellent george lucas impression though um yeah. <laughs> who does the book so um yeah check that we'll have links to that in the in the show notes and and michael uh i really just appreciate the work you've done we'll we'll try to stay in touch all right all right thanks for having me